You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, since I've had two friends separately tell me I'm a little long-winded, let me start a timer. Let's pray. Father, sanctify now these human words for the glory of Jesus by your Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as most of you know, we are following the lectionary, which means we are walking our way slowly through Romans. And tonight, as you've just heard read, we are in the last half of Romans 13. Dr. Webster and Matt, the last two weeks, pointed out that we are now in the section, we are in the the section where Paul wants to talk about the Christian life. He wants to tease out all the practical implications of what he has been building up for the last 11 chapters. Paul has been discussing this radical, otherworldly gospel. He has talked about the gravity of sin about his promises to Israel, about how those promises have been fulfilled in Christ and more. And now having explored all of that theological meat, so to speak, Paul is now moving into Christian living territory. He is speaking into life on the ground. So essentially, he's asking himself, in light of the gospel, what does it mean for the Christian life to look like? How do we live as Christians in this present evil age? Now, pause for just a second before we press further into Romans. I'm not sure where your mind went as I've been saying all that, that we are now in the Christian living section of Romans. But at least for me, I'm both a child and a survivor of Southern conservative Christianity. And perhaps you are too. What I'm getting at is that it could sound like we've spent all this time talking about the gospel, and now we're in the let's get real section where we roll up our sleeves and get busy doing the Christian life, the real stuff. We can now leave the gospel behind for the most part and talk about us. See, there's some difficulty preaching this passage. I feel this tension as I approach this text, as I preach it here in Birmingham, Alabama. Because we're not in pre-Christian Rome, we're in Birmingham, Alabama in the 21st century, which has a whole history of church culture and culture wars behind it, and we inevitably bring those things to the text when we hear Paul say these things. Birmingham is the third most church city, I believe I have that right, behind Chattanooga and Baton Rouge. And while this is good news in some ways that we are churched, It also means that we're in the Bible Belt and we have a good dose of moralism mixed in with our Christianity. And inevitably in this culture, sin begins to get trivialized, the Bible gets trivialized, and Jesus just takes a back seat where we get busy doing the moralistic Christian life. One of my seminary professors says that a lot of preaching in the South is preaching against suburban sins. Suburban sins. 
We go to church because we kind of, we, we want to feel bad. We want to feel bad and, and we want to be given a project. We want to hear about greed and lust and anger and, and we want to whip ourselves into shape. But my friend, that is not what Paul is getting at. Because you can whip yourselves into shape all you want and Jesus doesn't have to be raised from the dead for that to happen. There's also one other thing I could say about our moralistic culture, and Dorothy Sayers, the British playwright, and a Christian, by the way, um, she's helped me to see this, that a lot of what happens behind our church culture and behind our southern conservative moralistic culture, a lot of that is actually fear-based religion. She says this, We build up a defense mechanism against self-questioning because to tell the truth, we're very much afraid of ourselves. In other words, we can easily put up a strict barrier of morals and right living because we don't want to face the darkness inside or the darkness without. Perhaps you're here tonight and you'd say you've left behind. You, you recognize the sort of moralism that I'm talking about and you've, you've left that behind for an updated and more progressive version of church. Or maybe you are here tonight and you'd say you're not a Christian. Perhaps you're like the guy I met just a few weeks ago in Los Angeles who grew up in the South, in church, and said about church, it just makes you feel so guilty all the time. Well, if that's you, one way or another, I want you to know I'm glad you're here tonight. Whoever you are and whatever background you're coming from, whether you're the, you tend in the conservative Christian way or whether you are in the more progressive Christian way, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, Paul has a word for all of us tonight. Because all of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. God uses His word to direct our eyes always to Jesus by His Spirit. And if you are a Christian, he is shaping you always into the image and the likeness of Christ. If we are isolating just Romans 13, Paul here is specifically addressing the Christian community. He wants you and me to see that in light of the gospel, this is what it looks like to live into your Christian identity. He gives us an imperative, a command, how to live. But he also reminds us of the indicative, too, why we ought to live that way. So, so here's where we're going tonight. Here in Romans 13, 8 through 14, Paul is unpacking two aspects of the Christian life. He is unpacking, first, the how of the Christian life, namely, love others as God in Christ has loved you. That's number one. And number two, he is unpacking the why behind that. Why ought we to be that way? Because of the time, says Paul. So first, the how. Love others as God in Jesus Christ has loved you. That is the message. Verses 8 through 10 are a very practical and down-to-earth word for all of us. Using the imagery of dead, it says this, Christian, the only thing you ought to owe one another is your love. 
And if we remember Galatians 6 as well, where Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul is basically saying, if we take both of these things together, the general characteristic of the Christian life is to be marked by love. Because this is what God has created you and rescued you for. The gospel directs you outward in love toward your neighbor. It makes us extroverted, so to speak. And to make the point, Paul cites uh, just a few of the Ten Commandments. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. But he's showing us that these are not just negative moralistic commands. No, he's saying all of these commands are directing you outward in love toward your neighbor. How ought your Christian life to look? It is to be marked by Christ-like love. Love. Which, by the way, if our lives are to be marked by love, it necessarily means that we can't do this on our own. This isn't, the Christian life isn't primarily for you or doing it by yourself. And so here's where Paul's imperative to us and describing the how of the Christian life, here's how it actually cuts against both moralistic, conservative Southern Christianity and also something that's in our broader culture. If the Christian life is to be marked by love, and this is important, it necessarily involves other people. In the conservative Christian world in the U.S., Christian living is often, sadly, talked about as if this is a project for you to go as an individual, take on and do yourself, right? You as an individual roll up your sleeves and start getting busy. But Christian living, says Paul, is not mainly about you. As the reformer Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. The reason you are not to covet or murder or steal from them or engage in sexual misconduct, the whole reason is because your life is to be characterized by love and concern for the other ahead of yourself. God has created each and every one of us to image forth Himself. God in and of Himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has They've always been loving one another, and He has created us to image forth this love. This is what He has created you for, and this is what He has rescued you for. So now, the Word, says Paul, is forget about yourself. Live a life of self-forgetfulness and concern yourself for the other ahead of your own. The Gospel... It's, it's helpful to remember that the gospel comes into every culture and it subverts it, and yet it also fulfills it at the same time. The gospel comes into even our southern culture that is so familiar with church, and it subverts it, and yet it fulfills it. What do I mean by that? Well, to take our Birmingham church culture for an example, when the gospel is spoken here, especially in the moralistic world, it says, yes, you are right to be concerned about right living and good conduct. That's the fulfillment part. Yet it also subverts it and says, 
if you forget that that is to be marked by Christ-like love, and if that is cut off from the gospel, then you are missing the whole point. And in fact, your moralistic ways of being could be more marked by this present evil age that is passing away. It subverts it. So Paul's word to us tonight, for those of us who tend in the direction of conservative Christianity, yes, be concerned about right living, but don't forget that it is to be marked by self-giving love. But it's also worth noting that this word to love one another also cuts through our broader culture's view of love. Love is an overused word nowadays, isn't it? You often see on social media, hashtag love is love is love is love. Hashtag love not hate. I'll stop the hashtagging. One of my favorite pastimes. Our, our culture's primary narrative is this general view of love. It's, it's what, it's, it's a love that's emptied of its content. It's what Robert Bella, who is a sociologist, and Charles Taylor, a philosopher, it's called expressive individualism, that mainly the way to fulfill myself is to express what is deepest inside of me. And so what happens inevitably in this culture is that though we often talk about love, love is not mainly about the other person. It's actually about fulfilling my own deepest desires, even if it means leaving society behind. And it means for the other person to fulfill me. So Paul says, this is not what I am, what God in Jesus Christ is calling you to. You are called outward in love toward your neighbor. It's not negative freedom, which is what our culture says. It's not merely freedom from something. God has saved you for something. To mirror Christ-like love toward your neighbor. If sin, if, if Martin Luther is right, that sin is actually about being turned inward, then salvation is all about being turned outward. We live by trusting in Jesus Christ and we live outward in love toward our neighbor. We are marked by self-forgetfulness. And so this cuts across, this word cuts through both the moralistic, conservative way of talking about things and perhaps also the progressive way of talking about things. This expressive individualism. Now, I've been speaking in terms of ought, what ought to characterize the Christian life. Yet, if we in the church are honest with ourselves, the ideal is sadly not always the case. Brandon Bennett is not always primarily concerned about the other person. There is sadly too much sin mixed in here, and sadly the ideal is often, if ever, the case. We might trumpet a sort of moralistic law-keeping at the expense of love, or we might go the progressive route, but some way or another, however it happens, love actually doesn't play out like God has called us to. And this is why... This is why it's so important that every week we have that confession of sin that we walked through earlier. It's freeing because it helps us to express that we have not done what we ought to do. We have, 
we have failed actually in living the Christian life perfectly. And yet, the Gospel reminds us that while you and I are altogether unlovely, God has demonstrated and shown His measureless one-way love to you and to me. So as God in Jesus Christ has loved you and me, even when we were sinners, just as God in Christ has loved you, now you go show the same thing to your neighbor. That's the word. This is point one, but the second point, why? Well, Paul says in the remaining verses of our text, why? Because of the time. Paul uses this imagery here of what you may have heard in theological terms called the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. We are currently, says Paul, between this present evil age that is passing away and the age that is to come. It's currently nighttime, says Paul, and you know that. But when you have heard the gospel, you now know that daytime is fast approaching. The gospel is a reality check in this way. It's, as John Calvin says, it's like putting on the spectacles of faith. It's helping us to see where history is headed. It's helping us to see reality. And so what Paul is picking up here really, and what's playing behind the scenes, is really the gospel. And the gospel is both God's promise to you, and it's also, we could also talk about the gospel in terms of a story. I often find it helpful when talking with people, when articulating the gospel, and you can put this to memory if this is helpful for you, in terms of four plots on a narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It gives us a story. It tells us of creation, who we are, who God is, and yet it also talks about what has gone wrong with the world and it makes sense of why things are terribly wrong. And yet it also reminds us that God in Jesus Christ has not left us to our own devices. He is redeeming this world and He is making all things new. So when Paul says in verse 11 that we Christians know the time, he is saying, you know that we are now between this present evil age that is passing away where you live currently, but you are also a citizen of the age to come. We live between two worlds. So when you first heard the gospel, says Paul, when you first heard the good news that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you may have not put it together, but actually what you were hearing is that this present evil age is passing away. And Paul now says to us, live in light of that reality. He's not simply, again, just to stress the point, he is not simply giving us a moralistic code of laws to follow as individuals. In fact, it's more of a description of what the new creature and the new community rooted in Jesus Christ looks like. He is saying, live as a citizen of that age that is to come because you have heard the good news that God has raised His servant Jesus from the dead and you are now marked by that future where God is taking this world. He is making all things new. A really helpful phrase here for me is and I hope this is helpful for you, is a, it's from a book called When Helping Hurts. Uh, the phrase is anticipatory deeds. Paul is calling us here 
Paul is calling for us to be marked by Christian love, to be marked by deeds that anticipate this future age that God is calling us to. That is, that is the point of what Paul is getting at. There's another book I recently read um, called Destroyer of the Gods by Larry Hurtado. This is a book about Christianity uh, on the margins in the Roman Empire. The book helps show me, and I hope it helps show you if you read it, that having this life, this distinctive Christian life, is actually, it's an act of love, actually. He, he gives some context to the early church and gives some context to these verses. In the early days of the church, you have to remember that, that the church was on the margins of society. Europe had not yet been shaped by Christianity. In fact, the church was looked at as weird. They were seen as revolutionaries, as too narrow, as too exclusive. They were weird to the pagans of Rome. And yet, though they were marginalized and though they were persecuted, the church still grew. But they didn't assimilate to the culture to try to win over converts, nor did they withdraw into their own enclave. Instead, they were faithfully present. And what Hurtado helps show is that what the pagan Romans noticed about the Christians, slowly but surely, is, is their hospitality, is their love. In fact, he notes what the early church theologian Tertullian says. He says, look at how they love one another. That's what the pagan Romans say about the church. Look at how they love one another. It is obvious and becoming, well, it's becoming slowly obvious to even us in the South that Christianity is moving to the margins once again, even in our Western culture, even in Birmingham. And if the trends continue, it will for sure be in Birmingham. So what is Paul's word for you tonight as this community called the five o'clock service at the Advent? And what is Paul's word for you tonight as an individual here in this room? He is saying, recognize your identity and live into that identity in Jesus Christ. God has saved you to live a life of self-forgetfulness. He has rescued you to image forth his love to the world. Is God's self-giving love what you, what we are known for? Is, is God's self-giving love what we are marked by? Are we famous in Birmingham for our hospitality like the early church? This would actually be quite a countercultural something in Birmingham, Alabama, which is mainly, sadly, marked by a moralistic way of carrying ourselves. But Paul says, recognize that you have been saved only by God's one-way love, and now you too show that to your neighbor. The nighttime, yes, still lingers on, but the daytime is approaching. Remember, says Paul, God has raised Jesus from the dead, and that means this present evil age is passing away. And so we are looking and longing expectantly for that time, for that future where God has made all things new. And so live in light of that reality. So let's learn from the early church 
and be famous for hospitality, be famous for our self-giving love, be pioneers in civility. Don't take from your neighbor for yourself. Forget about yourself. Don't use their bodies for your own sexual gratification. Don't steal from them. Don't covet from them because you are now marked by that future world where we are to image among one another God's self-giving love. And what's the word for you? Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. What's the word for you? God has created you for self-giving love. And in Jesus Christ, this love crosses even death itself because God has raised Jesus from the dead and He is making all things new. The night is almost gone and the daytime is fast approaching. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would indeed hasten the daytime. Lord, in the meantime, we pray that by your Spirit you would stir in us the fruit of good living and stir in us to be marked by Christ-like, self-giving love toward one another. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So please stand and let us declare our faith in the one true God, whose Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.